Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Mike Watson, the Associate Director of the Hudson Institute Center for the Future of Liberal Society. For our summer 2021 issue, Mike wrote a fascinating essay titled Industrial Policy and the Real World. In his piece, Mike argues that among the most significant and enduring achievements of the Trump administration was President Trump's unsettling of Republicans' longstanding economic priorities. After decades of pursuing free trade, the Trump-era GOP saw the rise of a national conservative coalition whose members are united in support for industrial policy a program involving the centralization of economic planning in the hands of federal regulators. The national conservatives insist that such centralization is essential for protecting American jobs, preserving vital economic interests. But Mike calls for humility and restraint in his essay. The history of American economic policy, he writes, provides as much a warning for industrial policy advocates as it does a guide, revealing the intractable challenges these would-be planners face. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Mike. So to start off here, we want to spend most of the time during the conversation talking about the history of industrial policy and the efficacy of it in America. And you obviously uh, go to great lengths in your piece about that. But just to start off here, we wanted to kind of frame the discussion. And so let's start with some definitions. In your opinion, what is industrial policy exactly? And why do you think Republicans and people on the right have become so interested in it, you know, kind of in recent years? Yeah. So industrial policy is there are a variety of different ways that people define it. As is true for most anything that's a little wonky, but industrial policy, I tend to think of as being an economic program that is designed to protect or favor or advantage particular industries. So, for example, a economic policy that is designed to just have the largest GDP growth number is not necessarily an industrial policy, but an economic program that's designed to, for example, increase railroad building or bring more semiconductor factories to the U.S. That's kind of more along the lines of industrial policy. So there are a couple of different groups of people kind of on the center right who are interested in industrial policy, in addition to kind of a variety of you know, business interest groups who usually are trying to maneuver the legislative and executive branches in order to do things that they would like to advantage their particular industries. Obviously, you know, the steel industry, for example, would like pro-steel policies. So in addition to that kind of, you know, normal lobbying or, or whatever you want to call it, there's also more or less two different groups that are really into it right now. The first group are the national conservatives. I think they've had a couple of conferences now, and it's a broad spectrum of people, but there's a substantial chunk of them who are trying to figure out how to kind of build off of the energy that Donald Trump brought to the party and build off of some of Trump's policy inclinations into something that's a little bit more robust kind of intellectually, in the sense that they kind of see that there's a lot of problems in the Rust Belt. I mean, the fact that everyone knows that we have something called a Rust Belt indicates that we, not everything is going the way you'd like it to. Right. And they're trying to figure out ways to kind of help different parts of the country, either like different regions or different industries, be a little bit better as far as producing meaningful employment for lots of Americans. So that's kind of the first group. Many of them consider themselves national conservatives, not all of them do that. The second group are kind of the national security hawks. And for a lot of them, it's not so much that they're upset that, let's say, textile manufacturing has left the United States. 
they may, all things being equal, rather have that job done by Americans than by other people. But for the most part, for them, they're more concerned about things that are either traditionally associated with a strong national defense or other emerging technologies that are almost certainly going to have implications for our national security. Right. So, you know, you've got some people who are really into protecting like our, you know, semiconductor or other supply chains, making sure that we know either everything that's going into, let's say the F-35 jet or whatnot is made in the U.S. or made by an ally. You've got other people who, rather than being concerned about kind of dual use technologies like semiconductors are more just concerned about, you know, making sure that we have like enough steel to build nuclear submarines and stuff like that. And the national security hawks tend to be very concerned about China since they're likely going to be our top competitor for you know most of our lifetimes. And then the national conservatives, I think, are often concerned about China, but that's one of a set of concerns that they have. They're happy to use national security justifications for some of the things they'd like to do. But you know, for national conservatives, they may, for example, be more concerned about the opioid epidemic or something like that than the national security hawks are necessarily. So oftentimes industrial policy will be discussed in the context of those two things. So national security on the one hand, manufacturing, economics on the other hand. But it's also interesting because, and this is kind of the general thrust of the piece, so much of the argument is actually winds up being about American economic theory and political theory and whether or not our regime or the regime that the founders created is one that is amenable to that kind of centralization. So on that note, you kind of start off the piece by talking about Alexander Hamilton, which is often where these industrial policy advocates will begin as well. So in your view, to what extent should we regard Alexander Hamilton as an industrial policy advocate? Was his vision of of government the same as that of the industrial policy advocates today, or was it different in important ways? Yeah, In some ways, it's very similar, right? So Alexander Hamilton's big thought, so to speak, he's a brilliant guy, was able to do a lot. So he had many big thoughts. But in this context, his big thought is that the United States was, a, as was most of the world, was a primarily agrarian society at that time. So, you know, you have like the larger plantations in the South, up in New England, where you can't have giant plantations because of the geography. You're talking mostly about kind of individual homesteader types, maybe centered around a small town or something like that. His argument, more or less, is that that's that's very nice, but we need something else. So he's trying to copy the British model as much as he could, and he's primarily thinking of this in terms of national security, but he's also thinking of this in terms of what kind of economy do you want to have. So his first thing that he starts off with is making sure that we're able to, or trying to make sure that we're able to fight wars and hopefully win. So obviously, the most important thing you need to fight a war is money, right? So Cicero. I think it was Cicero who says, you know, the sinews of war are unlimited money or something like that. So Hamilton's first thought is, okay, well, we need to figure out a way to develop a financial market in the United States so that if we are in a war, we can borrow money that we don't have yet without going bankrupt. One of the reasons why the end of the Revolutionary War is a much more near-run thing than a lot of us realize now is that, you know, around the time of the Battle of Yorktown, the French are trying to stave off financial collapse as long as they can because they're going bankrupt fighting the Brits. It just happens to be the case that you know Yorktown knocks out one of the two large British armies on the continent, also causes the Lord North governing coalition to collapse, and then the Brits decide that it's time to, to go for peace, right? So so Hamilton's kind of aware that you know we got lucky, but we need to have a financial system. So that's the part that a lot of industrial policy advocates don't necessarily think of today as much. They tend to focus on 
his report on manufacturers, which is his second prong in his strategy. So the first prong is getting your financial markets in shape. So that that way, if you need to borrow things or borrow money in order to fight wars, you can. The second part is a little bit less national security oriented at, at his time, a little bit more of a what kind of society do we need to live in? And that is, his preference is to use tariff revenue to subsidize particular targeted industries. Some of them are things like the sugar industry, which I think got its first protective tariff or quota in like 1789 and is still protected. Sugar industry is has one of the first beneficiaries of our industrial policy. But there's other things in there too that have to do with shipbuilding and other things that you might think of as being more explicitly part of your national defense. So for Hamilton, he's got his kind of two different prongs there, finance and manufacturing. He's trying to make them work together by you know, having a credit market that is financed partly by those tariffs that will partly protect American emerging industries from foreign imports. But his main goal is rather than have a really high tariff that discourages trade, he'd rather have a tariff that's just enough to raise enough money to start paying off our debts and start subsidizing key industries. So in many ways, that, that's pretty similar to what a lot of the industrial policy advocates today are, are in favor of. Where I would say there's a, a bit of a difference is that a lot of them are looking at manufacturing as the key to like kind of mass employment in the U.S. And in Hamilton's time, you know, that is a cutting edge new industry, switching from an agrarian society to an industrial society. Now, we've been doing industrial stuff for a long time. Obviously, there's always going to be a place for that. I tend to think that industrial manufacturing and whatnot is going to go a little bit the direction that agriculture does now, where it's likely going to, because of advances in automation and stuff like that, it's likely going to be a key part of your economy as something that you really need to have, but not necessarily something that's going to employ a lot of people. And a concern I have for a lot of the industrial policy types today is if you're trying to kind of create large amounts of jobs, doing something that's high productivity, so that it's high paying, they have to kind of figure out a way to like either create new products that we can sell a ton of so that we can have a high productivity sector that's producing a bunch of stuff, or they've got to figure out another solution. And I, I just don't see a particularly bright future for you know using industrial policy to make like mass employment in the manufacturing sector anymore. So all that to say, you know, Hamilton does want to steer the economy in a particular direction. So in that way he's similar. But I tend to think that his vision is a little bit more future-oriented, maybe, than a lot of the industrial policy types today. Yeah. So, Mike, you've already touched on mm-hmm. tariffs, but you know, tariffs and then central banking were obviously kind of two of the main things that Hamilton was talking about in his program. But then you kind of interestingly note in your piece that first, this was kind of very much a Federalist Party program. And then later, the Democratic Republicans, the opposite party, kind of adopted it. And so kind of suggesting there that you know, you may have a certain intention of what type of economic policy you want to produce with this agenda, but that often it becomes captured by other political interests, political coalitions. Could you kind of talk a little bit about that idea during that early period of American history where it was Federalists versus Democratic Republicans and how the rivalry between the parties affected industrial policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's kind of a commonplace observation that one of the dangers of industrial policy is that it can be captured by special interests. And so an example that could be the sugar industry, right? Maybe there was a rationale for protecting the sugar industry in 1789, but you know, even in 1789 or so, the sugar industry was one of the most lucrative fields you could be in. So now that's not the case. 
And, you know, I don't necessarily think that like American national security is going to be like compromised if we're, you know, importing sugar from somewhere in Central America, right? Now, having said that, if I was a senator from Florida or like somewhere else in the Gulf, I'd adamantly disagree, right? <laughs> right. So there is a little bit of that that people kind of get, right? That, you know, different people will kind of glom onto your, your big idea and add their little kind of carve out for their friends. But what was interesting about the kind of debate that Hamilton started and that Thomas Jefferson entered into was that rather than it just being the case that, you know, you've got like one or two special interests to kind of, you know, get their little carve out in the bill, Thomas Jefferson basically kind of made a mockery of Hamilton's program. So Jefferson's basic thought is, you know, our, our biggest trading partner is the UK, the United Kingdom, the, the British Empire is trying to prevent us from becoming an economic rival. And so they're doing these various things to mess with our trade. And, you know, Hamilton more or less says, well, that is not good. I would rather they didn't do it, but we also can't really do much about it because we're not strong enough yet. So we're going to have to just live in this system until we can get strong enough to do something about it. And Jefferson's thought is now, like, I don't want to have to deal with this. So we're going to have a trade war and basically we're going to force the Brits to, to stop doing it. So for Jefferson, he kind of takes Hamilton's pro-manufacturing argument and says, you know, like, well, actually in Jefferson's case, initially his he thinks that the manufacturing idea is, is terrible. He'd rather stick with an, an agrarian economy. But because he wants a trade war with the Brits and he wants tit for tat, retaliatory measures and all that, that becomes very popular amongst the manufacturers. They say, well, you know, like, regardless of these larger arguments, if I'm the guy making ropes or something for ships in Boston, you know, if you can't import ropes anymore from the UK or from the West Indies, that's a good deal for me. So Jefferson, you know, by running on this almost anti-trade or effectively anti-trade platform ends up taking a huge chunk of Hamilton's supporters and pulling them into Jefferson's new political party, which that new party, the Democratic Republican Party, then more or less tries to rip apart Hamilton's plan. And Hamilton never comes up with a really good solution to this. Now, after Hamilton gets killed in that duel, the Federalist Party more or less says, well, you know, we kind of have to stick with the financial wing of the plan and, and kind of go with that. And the Federalist Party kind of implodes pretty soon after that. Now, it's not only because they picked the financial side instead of the manufacturing side, but Jefferson's able to very effectively gut Hamilton's party and then turn that report on manufacturers into a weapon that he can use against Hamilton's people. But the Federalists lost, but I mean, they lost by virtue of the fact that the Democratic Republicans stole literally like their, their research, their documents and weaponized it against them. <laughs> So I'm just curious, though, because it does seem like there's something important there in the narrative that, I mean, it wasn't exactly what Hamilton envisioned, but the economics of, of the founding era after that point were kind of dominated by, by his thought to some extent, right? To a certain extent. After Jefferson wins, he has that trade war with the, the Brits where he figures out that he can't. I think at that point, he's not sure that he has the authority to just like stop imports, but he does think he can stop exports. So he has that trade war that. I think Jefferson's thought may have been that the Brits were so addicted to American tobacco that if we stopped exporting to them, they'd cave. And it turns out that tobacco may be addictive for individuals, but not for economies. So after the trade embargo, and after the War of 1812, you do have this kind of resurgence in Hamiltonian thought where it's not so much we need to stop trade until the Brits give us everything we want, but more along those lines of, you know, okay, we actually do need to resurrect Hamilton's plan for a financial system. We need 
support for manufacturing. But what ends up happening is in the 1816 tariff, I think it is. So right, right after the war, Congress decides that we need to start developing our own domestic manufacturing again. Francis Lowell is a Massachusetts cotton mill owner who went over to the UK. At this time, the Brits are trying to protect their secret technology, which is like the water wheel. And Lowell goes to some cotton mills and just looks at the machine long enough to figure out how it works. And then goes home and builds one, which you know is something that should give us a little bit of concern about our own attempts to kind of out-innovate some of our opponents is that industrial espionage is an old and dishonored tradition, but you know <laughs> people have been good at it for a long time. But Lowell realizes that he's making kind of lower quality cotton goods that compete more or less with imports from India. And some of his competitors in Rhode Island are making the kind of the good stuff that is more like what you're getting out of the UK. Lowell is worried about the end of the, the Napoleonic Wars and the kind of an onrush of cotton goods coming in from India through, through the UK. He realizes too, though, that a lot of the plantation owners in the South are exporting their stuff to the UK. And the plantation owners are not going to be a big fan of you know, having a second trade war if it's something that could hurt them if the Brits decide to retaliate against them. So Lowell kind of helps organize a deal where basically the higher end stuff that's being made in Rhode Island is not particularly well protected by this tariff, but the not particularly nice stuff that he makes is very well protected. So People now think of like, okay, in 1816, Congress figured out that Hamilton was a genius. They realized the error of their ways. And we launched this new strategy that's going to like finally kind of sock it to the British. And what happens instead is you've got this very clever fellow who figures out how to build a political coalition around different parts of the North and the South that are happy to protect his not particularly good product while all the really good stuff that we're making gets just wiped out because of the way that we've designed our tariffs. So you do have that like kind of 12-year window after the war where the high tariff is once again kind of in its ascendancy, but a similar thing happens in 1828 where we're readjusting our tariff rates again. Martin Van Buren, who I think is probably the closest to, I was a Frank Underwood from House of Cards, He's yeah, probably that's the, I think so. <laughs> say, yeah, yeah. So he he's the closest I think any American politician has ever come to that guy. Um, <laughs> wow, that, that's quite the claim, Mike. Yeah, I mean, you know, as far as I know, Van Buren didn't like actually murder anybody. But um, <laughs> but as far as like kind of figuring out how to maneuver his way through D.C. into becoming president from a not particularly strong starting position, I think it's him. So Van Buren you know, is getting ready to help Andrew Jackson run for president in 1828. At this point, Van Buren realizes the South is pretty much locked in on Jackson's side. The Northeast is generally going to be pulling for Jackson's opponent, John Quincy Adams, the incumbent president. And kind of what we think of now is the Midwest at the time, they're, they're just calling it the West or whatever is kind of the, the battleground. So Van Buren basically sets up a tariff schedule that he gets through Congress that is going to really raise the rate significantly on, on American raw materials. So all the Midwesterners are a big fan of this. It's not a great move for the Southerners because from their end, a lot of the goods that they import are going to become a little bit more expensive as well. But in New England, 
there are like different key constituencies that are getting protected, but a lot of the more national defense oriented industries are not. So Van Buren kind of sets this up in a way that the New Englanders are going to be at each other's throat over this. The Midwesterners are going to be supportive of this tariff and the Southerners are going to hate it. But he kind of tells the Southerners, eh, it's all right. Like, you know, we're just doing this to mess with the New Englanders. It's never going to make, oh crap, it made its way through Congress. I'm so <laughs> sorry for you. <laughs> that's a real shame. So this is again, that's like the last big tariff we have. South Carolina tries to, well, almost secedes over it a few years later. They're so upset about it. But yeah, we have that like moment that people think of as like, you know, everybody realizes that Hamilton's a genius and that we need to try industrial policy. And we do try industrial policy and it ends up being pretty darn self-defeating again, where like the molasses industry is getting everything that it needs. And our shipbuilders who are our like first line of defense, if we end up in a war with any European country are, you know, kind of left out in the cold. All right, Mike. So to kind of wrap up the historical part of your piece, I just wanted to read a couple quotes from your essay. So, quote, between 1787 and 1860, the federal government spent 54 million on infrastructure, an amount dwarfed by the state's collective 450 million. Yet, despite the lack of leadership for Washington, or perhaps because of it, the nation prospered. And then you give kind of some examples of what you're talking about. Even before the Civil War set off a railroad boom, the United States had constructed more miles of track than France, Great Britain, and the German states. The United States GDP surpassed Great Britain's in 1862. And though the United States had the larger population, its per capita GDP hovered between 82% and 93% of Britain's at the time. So obviously, you know, once we're getting kind of post-Civil War, the U.S. does have has had some great economic success. You're kind of suggesting that it's almost despite the industrial policy, not because of the industrial policy. Is, is that a fair way to read what you're arguing there? Yeah, I think after Andrew Jackson gets into office and his, he and his successors try to steadily chip away at the tariff and tend to be less supportive of large federal support for infrastructure projects, the U.S. ends up doing pretty well. You know, I think a lot of the histories that, that I was reading in preparation for writing this, this article tend to talk about that as kind of a dark period, you know, like the kind of barbarians are not only at the gates, they made it into the White House and, you know, they're kind of like wrecking everything. And I was a little surprised to discover that, you know, GDP statistics from that time are not as, as nice as we'd like them to be. But the best information I could find is that you know, our economy does pretty well. Now, part of that is when you basically have a bunch of forests that you can cut down the trees, sell the trees, and then put in a farm, right? You're starting from a very low economic potential for your land. So if you have a lot of land and a lot of people coming in, you can pretty quickly make your GDP numbers go up, right? I mean, this is why the growth rates for emerging or kind of developing countries are often so much higher than they are in the developed world. I'm not sure to what extent, like as a counterfactual, if there had been no 1828 tariff, I'm not sure how our economy would have turned out. But it is the case that even though we had about a generation of political leadership in, in D.C. that was not a fan of centrally directing the economy, we did very well. I tend to think that that's like one of our kind of national characteristics is that, and we've seen this with the pandemic, that we are extremely slow at getting a jump on a new problem. And then we kind of come rushing in at the end and kind of clobber everybody else. So, you know, if you think of like the pandemic, the first, let's say, six months was not our finest moment as a country. But during those six months, basically, we several different companies with a decent amount of federal support in this case. But, you know, we had several countries who kind of figured out what, what we needed to do to get some vaccines moving. Then we kind of are starting to bury the rest of the world in mounds and mounds of vaccines where, you know, I, I think even in 
gosh, I think even in March, people were talking about, you know, we have no idea when everybody's going to get vaccinated. Now, sure. now our problem is we have too many and we need to get people to take them. Right. So all that's to say is that I think I'm not sure that like the 1828 tariff like made us like catch up to Britain three years later than we would have otherwise. But I do think it, it is the case that, you know, this kind of period that a lot of people think of as kind of a, a backward period in, in DC where you have a bunch of people making foolish decisions. I think there were a lot of foolish decisions made during that period, but I don't necessarily think it was the economic policy that was the problem. So let's let's bring this up mm-hmm. kind of to the modern day debates here. So, you know, you kind of note in your piece that some advocates of industrial policy today might say that, well, you know, we have a better trained class of government experts now who just have more knowledge about how to implement these types of policies than, you know, the statesmen of the 1850s would have. But you kind of suggest that that's a misguided view, particularly pointing to Pentagon spending, Department of Defense spending. You say, quote, that there is no reason to believe that today's executive branch has either the vision or the competence to carry off the kind of policy leadership industrial planners wish to see. Why did you use uh, Pentagon spending here as an example? And how does that kind of illustrate your point here? Yeah, well, you know, the Pentagon is a great example of our industrial policy that we have now. I think people sometimes mistakenly believe that we don't have any industrial policy now and that the question should be industrial policy, yes or no. And I mean, basically, what we do now mostly is ensure a mostly functioning defense industrial base and stuff like that through the Department of Defense. Now, because defense spending is popular in this country, there's a lot of other things that are, are smuggled in through the Pentagon budget that aren't really important for national defense, but are important for you know whichever uh, constituency needs to be funded in order to have defense spending projects get through, right? Yeah, so I was using the Pentagon for a couple of reasons, one of which is that it is probably the most important place that we do industrial policy as far as spending money. Now, there are obviously other places that do a lot of regulations, and that's an important part of our industrial policy as well. But for spending money, the Pentagon is kind of the place we do it. The other reason that the Pentagon is an example is, you know, if you think of like a place that you'd expect a technocratic institution to work well, it's hard to think of something other than the Pentagon is kind of your example, right? I mean, you've got most of the programs are run by officers who are at least college graduates if they don't have they don't have graduate school. So that already puts them like in a, in a pretty top tier of Americans in general, right? They've all taken oaths to obey lawful orders. So you'd expect that if you're going to have any kind of top-down direction, that would be the place to see it enacted. You know, they have a fairly well-defined mission, which is basically to protect the country and, and, and win wars, which that's not so specific that any of us can just say, okay, well, you know, we can figure that out in three steps, right? But if you're thinking about industrial policy as being protecting different industries or supporting different industries in order to ensure the health of your country, that's also very complicated. So I think that the Pentagon's kind of a, a good microcosm of the successes we can have with industrial policy, but also the problems we have. And I, you know, I'm a fan of defense spending. I like living in a country that can protect itself and its allies. And I'm not trying to launch any kind of like burning down the house sort of critique at the <laughs> Pentagon. I'm just saying that like that is the place to look. And you know, there are pluses and minuses. Yeah, just to speak to some of the minuses, I think for listeners, it's probably worth hearing. I'm just going to read a few sentences from that section of the piece. Today's aircraft carriers are built and maintained by over 2,000 firms scattered across 46 states. One of the newest carriers, the USS Gerald R. Ford, cost $2.8 billion more than originally budgeted. Lockheed Martin sourced parts for the F-22 stealth fighter from over 1,000 suppliers across 44 states. And the F-35 fighters are being built in 45 states as well as Puerto Rico. All of this prompted the late 
Senator John McCain to denounce the F-35 program as a, quote, scandal and a tragedy with respect to cost, schedule, and performance. It's pretty bad. I think you were maybe underselling it a little bit a second ago. It sounds like kind of a disaster in some respects. To kind of wrap up the discussion here, I want to talk about coalitional dynamics kind of on the, on the right today with industrial policy. So you kind of conclude the piece by mentioning three kind of factions on the right here. We've got the pro-business wing of the party, the National Security Conservatives, the Hawks you talked about earlier, then also kind of the pro-manufacturing populists who tend to be the most interested in industrial policy. You, know, you, think, you would naturally think that maybe the pro-manufacturing types and the National Security Conservatives would naturally ally. They both have some interest in kind of boosting domestic industry, maybe for different reasons. But you kind of suggest that there might be some political issues with that. That might not work out too well. So then you kind of throw out the idea that, well, maybe if the pro-business wing actually works with the pro-manufacturing wing, that could be a better alliance. It could kind of create a balance between having some protections for domestic industries and placating kind of the populace that are on the rise today, but also kind of boosting economic growth and making sure that we have strong companies that can boost GDP a lot. Talk a little bit about those coalitional dynamics and where you think this is going in the future with industrial policy. The Republican Party oftentimes has positions that are, are pretty similar to what the business community has in the United States. So back in the progressive era, or the, the gilded age, I should say, the business community tended to be very supportive of a high tariff. And then eventually they thought, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that we need as many protections anymore, but what we could use is free trade or some kind of reciprocal agreement with other countries that we can sell things abroad. And at that point, the Republican Party tended to shift in the direction of being pro-free trade because they kind of figured that was the best way to ensure the health of the business community and through that, the country. So you could end up in a situation where the business community flips. And uh, instead of being very pro-free trade, minimum regulations and whatnot now, you could see them switching around to taking a, a more protectionist position. You've seen a little bit of this over the last, well, I was going to say over the last few years, but this has always been the case. You have a variety of industries that want their carve-outs. As I said earlier, the, the sugar industry, for example, has a record of, what was it, about 220 plus years of maintaining their protections, and they'd like to keep them. So you, know, you could end up in a situation where the business community and the kind of revitalizing the Rust Belt types and trying to form some kind of agreement in order to keep the Republican Party nationally competitive. Now, the problem with that is that if you go too far into protectionism, you end up with the problem we have with the Jones Act, where you've got all kinds of industries that you know, are not particularly economically viable. It's not quite make-work programs, but they're not the sort of thing that you could lean on to kind of keep your growth numbers up, you could very quickly end up in a situation where you become very stagnant and are not providing the opportunities that, you know, like future generations need in order for them to have a viable future. The third wing is, let's say that the national security hawks and the pro-business part of the party stay together. Their program is likely going to look very similar to what you had from the Republican Party, let's say like 2012, 2016 in the sense of low regulations, low taxes, maybe a little bit more emphasis on preventing adversaries from acquiring some of our high-tech stuff. But the difficulty there is that as much as a lot of people dislike big tech, it is the case that right now our R&D strategy basically is that Silicon Valley or some of the big tech companies experiment with different things by kind of plowing their own money into it or by funding universities to do it. And then we all hopefully reap the benefits of it. Like, you know, I guess Jeff Bezos just went up to space. And so we'll see if, you know, that means that soon we'll all be flying through space to get to Japan in like 20 minutes instead of you know, 12 hours or whatever. 
you know, maybe we'll see. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now the problem with the problem with that is, you know, the 2000, probably 2016, or, you know, you can even go earlier than that. The problem with that party platform is that it is the case that, you know, we have a rust belt that's not doing very well. And that, that is not a good thing. And not only that, but a lot of the people who are voting Republican right now tends to be very worked up about a lot of things they don't like about big tech, you know, either censoring views that the party base likes or trying to amplify, you know, things that the party base does not like. You know, you could very quickly end up with a party that can fit into like one ballroom in DC. That's a little bit of exaggeration, right? There's a lot of people in the suburbs who still tend to like low taxes and free trade and things like that. But it's not necessarily clear that you can have a viable coalition out of that. So I'm still a little bit of a fusionist in the sense that the, the Republican Party in the 1850s, when they, they started winning nationally and were able to be competitive in a way that Hamilton's Federalist Party and the Whig Party that came a little bit after that, those parties were not very successful, in part because they were leaning a little bit too much on the idea of create, you know, working on these like industries of the future. You know, we're going to support the manufacturers or we're going to support the financial industry or whatnot, and we're going to kind of revolutionize the American economy and society. So when the Republicans started winning, they kept a lot of that part of the old Federalist or the old Whig platform. But one of the other things they did was they looked at agriculture and tried to find ways that they could more directly stimulate it. So, you know, you have like the Homestead Act, where instead of being a free market for federal lands, you, each individual is only allowed to get, I think it was like 160 acres or what, you know, so they're, they're kind of like very visibly taking positions that are kind of pro the, the little guy, while also doing other things that are helping out the big railroads and the merchants and whatnot, who are more or less at the center of our financial system at the time. So like as, as much as like that kind of triangle, the national security hawks and the national conservatives and the, the pro-business wing of the party dislike each other, I think that e each of them does bring something to the table that could be advantageous either for you know appealing to various constituencies or you know kind of protecting our economic well-being or just kind of you know keeping the country in a position internationally where we're able to make we're able to set our own destinies, so to speak. So I tend to think that, you know, that's kind of the way that the Republican Party should think is that, you know, there are some industries that, you know, maybe we need to keep that heavy R&D research and development focus to augment them. But, you know, the, the Republican Party in the 1850s through 1890s or so did very well, partly because they were also trying to do something to help out some of these other industries that were not, not necessarily the industries of the future, but were the industries that brought in a lot of votes. And that might be something that would be worth looking at. So my argument is more or less, it's like a, a yellow light rather than a red or a green. Very humble and restrained and moderate, which we appreciate, of course. <laughs> well, Mike, this is very interesting. Thanks for kind of joining us, helping us tease out the elements of the industrial policy debate. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This is great. If you'd like to read Mike's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.